This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to the program. Richard Duggan in with you this afternoon. Linda Swain is off. Uh, We have a lot to get through on today's program, so I won't waste too much time. But I do want to mention some information that just came in from the RNC a couple of minutes ago. Uh, The constabulary is investigating a shooting that took place in St. John's this morning. Uh, They respond to the area of Bully Street around 745 this morning after reports of gunshots at this time. The incident is not believed to be random, and all people involved are said to be known to each other. Uh, There's no report of any injuries and uh, police are seeking any information or video footage from the area of Bully Street, Dick Square, Allen Square, Balsam Street, Queens Road, Henry Street, and Livingstone Street from between 7 and 8 o'clock this morning. Uh, so uh, all that information is up online right now on VOCM.com. Again, uh, the RNC investigating a shooting incident that took place in St. John's this morning. All right, so uh, the federal government is giving $700,000 in funding to crisis hotlines in Newfoundland and Labrador. The funding aims to strengthen support services for survivors of sexual and gender-based violence in the province and empower the hotlines to offer more robust resources and assistance. A news conference on that front took place this morning at the rooms in St. John's. Premier Andrew Fury, Provincial Minister Pam Parsons, Federal Minister Marcy Ian and Provincial MP Joanne Thompson were on hand for the announcement. Uh, In the next half hour, we'll take you back to what was said during that news conference. First, we'll begin with the federal side of things with Minister Ian and MP Thompson. Thank you, and and I'm so pleased to be here. And and when I look out, I see uh, so many familiar faces of colleagues that I worked with in community. And if I could be so bold as to say, I think we all share um, a real gratitude for this announcement. we, you know, anyone who works in the community, um, especially in the front line, but I think it's across all sectors, we know just how prevalent violence for women and other vulnerable groups are. So it really is a wonderful day for me. Gender-based violence knows no boundaries, and I think we all know that, and I'm looking at familiar faces that are nodding. Um, it affects people of all ages, gender, race, socioeconomic backgrounds. It takes so many forms, from physical abuse to emotional manipulation, sexual assault, coercive control. We know it lurks in the shadows of our communities, the privacy of our homes, and even in what we consider our safe public spaces. In the latest Statistic Canada study on intimate partner violence, it found that over 37% of women in Newfoundland and Labrador have experienced physical or sexual assault since the age of 15. And most commonly, this occurred through intimate partner violence. These statistics paint a sad image, one where women are not safe. Which brings us to today's important announcement. Crisis hotlines are a beacon of hope and support for people during the most vulnerable moments. These essential lifelines provide that safe space for people who are fleeing gender-based violence. It offers them a listening ear, important resource, and really the promise for a better tomorrow. Together, our joint efforts are bringing us one step closer towards a Canada free from gender-based violence. 
And I would now like to pass the mic over to my colleague, the Honorable Minister Marcy Ian, to share a little more about today's announcement. This is an important announcement today. I know we say they all are, but this is for all of the reasons that Joanne already outlined. We are here because we know that true and lasting gender equality is only really possible when people are safe, when they are safe in their workplaces, safe on their campuses, safe in their communities, safe in their homes. And gender-based violence continues to be a problem across Canada. We heard the statistics here in Newfoundland and Labrador. It is one that takes a physical, psychological, and financial toll on survivors and their families. And I want to punctuate the families part because it affects so many people, the survivor and those around them too. We know that the COVID-19 pandemic only worsened the situation because of the loss of income and isolation, overcrowding, stress, stigma, anxiety, all these factors led to what experts called a shadow pandemic of gender-based violence. Newfoundland and Labrador, as we heard, is grappling with this issue, as are most regions across this country. And this issue is even more pronounced in rural and remote areas in the north. Many organizations providing gender-based violence supports and services, including crisis hotlines, reported an increase in the amount and severity of violence since the start of the pandemic. We told people to stay home, but home wasn't safe for many people. And the data tells a grim story, a story of mothers, sisters, daughters, friends, neighbors who aren't safe in their own homes. As Minister of Women and Gender Equality and Youth, I've had an opportunity to hear from survivors of gender-based violence in communities right across our country. The stories are harrowing. The journeys are hard. The things that they have lived through are testimonies, and they, they remind us that gender-based violence is a problem that has not gone away. And it's important to speak that. It's important to present the facts. I've also heard from organizations about the importance of having access to supports and allowing flexibility and support outside the hours of 9 to 5. And this is exactly why our government has made it clear that everyone, everyone has the right to live free from violence and that we have been working to end gender-based violence in all of its forms. Since April 2020, we've invested more than $300 million of emergency COVID-19 funding in more than 1,400 women's organizations, shelters, assault centers, including 160 organizations that serve Indigenous communities, culturally appropriate places. Because of this funding, more than 2 million people experiencing gender-based violence had a safe place to turn. They had supports. They had the services that they needed. In addition to this, we're working to move forward with legal and justice reforms, which are so needed. And we continue to make it our utmost priority to support the essential work of organizations that are saving lines literally on the front lines as we speak. 
and it is not a stretch to say that lives are being saved. We know this. I've heard this. We see this. Those that are here know this. And that brings us to today's announcement. I am more than proud to announce $700,000 in funding to Newfoundland and Labrador to distribute to crisis hotlines responding to gender-based violence. This funding is important, and we'll hear more why. Because we've heard firsthand this crisis, that crisis hotlines are a lifeline for women and gender-diverse people experiencing violence here in Newfoundland and Labrador and around the country. I'm not exaggerating, and I'll say it again, and I have heard this time and time again, that getting directly connected to supports, getting directly connected to services, is often the difference between life and death. And I might add, that's a phone call sometimes, sometimes it's a text. This funding comes from the total $30 million to get help to crisis hotlines. And I'm so proud to be here in St. John's to deliver on that commitment. In fact, today marks the 11th. It's the 11th bilateral agreement that our government has been able to reach with provinces and territories. And these agreements have helped get additional funding into the hands of crisis hotline operators on the ground. They get the money that they need to continue 24-7, 365 days a year. Just yesterday, uh, Minister Parsons slash Pam and I were on Prince Edward Island where we had the chance to gather with our fellow ministers from across the country, ministers that represent the status of women. And we, we, got, we got a lot done. We exchanged best practices. We shared our information. We spoke about our unique collective efforts to address gender-based violence and how we can better support women in the economy. The last time that we met uh, in November 2022 was to announce an historic milestone, and that was the launch of the National Action Plan to end gender-based violence. And that plan sets a framework for anyone facing, anyone facing gender-based violence to have reliable but also timely access to protection and services no matter where they live. So today's announcement on crisis hotlines complements and supports the implementation of this really, really important work. But it takes people and organizations on the ground to support people in need. And I'm looking at all of you seated here who did just that. We have the honor to have representatives of some of those frontline organizations with us here today. And thank you for truly making a difference. People like Sandra, and the work she does at Newfoundland and Labrador Sexual Assault Crisis and Prevention Center. Our, our government has funded the center's work to make sure that survivors in the province are properly supported. We also worked with the Transition House Association of Newfoundland on projects to strengthen the network, that network that is so important, of provincially funded shelters and services for people impacted by intimate partner violence. Again, thank you for this work. You're on the ground, 
And I have to say, I, I often uh, worry and want to make sure that frontline workers and you are, are supported. I think of your mental health. I think of what you do, not just the stories, but the people um, that you serve every single day. And that is not the kind of work that you just leave at the door when you get home. That's the kind of work that stays with you. And you're in it because you believe you have a purpose and it is a choice that you made. And I and we thank you for making it. We know that there's a long way to go, but I feel we can safely say that we're moving in the right direction. And that's important. And there you have it. That was uh, Federal Minister Marcy Ian and MP Joanne Thompson from that announcement this morning. We're going to take a quick break here now on News Talk. And when we come back, we'll have some of the comments from the Premier and uh, the Provincial Minister. Uh, That's coming up next here on VOCM. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Richard Duggan and with you this afternoon. Uh, going back now to that news conference from this morning, uh, $700,000 in funding coming from the federal government uh, for crisis hotlines in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, Earlier, we heard from the federal minister and MP Joanne Thompson on uh, that news conference. Now we're going to hear from Premier Andrew Fury and Provincial Minister Pam Parsons. Minister, welcome to the welcome to the province. As you said, it's the first time we've met and uh, in person, but I feel like we have so many different intersecting paths that I feel like I know you already. And so you have a friend here, and you will always have a friend in the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. So so welcome to our beautiful home and welcome and thank you for the the incredible announcement today your colleague uh, joanne and i've been friends for quite some time and i'm going to steal some of the lines that she says all the time which is that when different levels of government work together and when we cooperate and when we collaborate there is no issue that is too complex to tackle and today isn't a great example of that because while the issues may be complex, the solutions are embedded directly and indirectly in governments working together. When you don't have governments and different levels of governments that work together, then you have chaos and nothing gets done. But when you have co- cooperative, collaborative partners, despite the challenge, despite the size of the complexity, you can actually move the needle. And for that, I'm internally grateful both to Joanne and her voice, specifically in this sector, as she comes with such a broad depth of experience uh, that you will, you've heard it and we see it. So thank you, Joanne, for everything that you do and making sure that all the government levels of government work together. Sexual and gender-based violence, of course, is a significant concern uh, here at home and worldwide. It is unfortunately leading to long-lasting negative health, social, and economic consequences. And we all know the statistics, and I don't, it doesn't need to be repeated necessarily. Some have already been stated here today. But as I was perusing the statistics, and as I used to in my previous career, because intimate partner violence is, is a large portion, it impacts women in particular and causes people to go to fracture clinics, it, the statistics are just statistics. What we need to take from the statistics is that it impacts all of us. 
directly or indirectly, survivors and families. And I can't help but feel the weight of my grandmother here today who, who didn't have some of these supports and left in the middle of the night with eight children under her arm with no hotlines and no supports. And is one of the reasons why I ran for public office, to make sure that I could honor her spirit in the venues and announcements just like this. So we are completely and happily pleased to continue to work with the federal government through Women and Gender Equality Canada and providing this funding to crisis hotlines in Newfoundland and Labrador over the next three years. That supports such as this are critical to building a safer and more inclusive province, one that pr promotes and embraces equality for all, safety for all. My friend and colleague Pam Parsons, as I have already said, will make sure that this money goes to good use to protect people across our province, not just here in St. John's, but with a particular focus on gaps that we know exist in the North. Thank you to all the dedicated people in our province who undertake this important and often emotionally traumatic work, some of it, a lot of it, done by volunteers and family members to support people in times of crisis. Those making the difficult calls, we are here to support you. And those answering those calls, we are here to love and support you as well. We see you, we hear you, we value you. We want to work with you to fill the gaps that exist in the current system. And Sexual Violence NL reports that since the start of the pandemic, it has experienced a 45% increase in calls and texts. As you said, the silent pandemic. A 33% increase in requests for support as compared to previous years. As we move to embrace and action the implementation of the 10-year National Action Plan to end gender-based violence, we will be considering the needs of our crisis lines and other programs to fill those gaps, to help communities, to help people in need, and to help people who support them. And there you have it. That was Premier Andrew Fury from that news conference this morning, uh, during which the uh, federal government announced $700,000 in funding for crisis hotlines uh, right across Newfoundland and Labrador. All right. Uh, we are going to go for a break now in a minute. Uh, but first off, give you a little taste now of what's coming up uh, in the next half hour of the program. Uh, Bob Buckingham Law has launched a class action lawsuit against Newfoundland and Labrador Health Services and NL uh, Fertility Services for a privacy breach one month ago. Um, I spoke with Bob Buckingham a little while ago, and we're going to air some of that conversation uh, coming up in a little bit um, as well uh, following up on a story that we brought you earlier in the week the commissioner for legislative standards has found that there's no reasonable grounds grounds to conduct an inquiry into premier andrew fury's fishing trip to a luxury lodge owned by john risley in july of 2021 uh, and that report uh, stemmed from uh, pcmha barry petten uh, making a request for the commissioner to look into um, the allegations of a conflict of interest with the premier so i spoke with mha barry petten um, earlier today and we're going to bring you some of that conversation as well and if we have time we're going to bring you back to a great little piece uh, from vocm's brian medore uh, from the regatta yesterday uh, during which a couple got engaged now 
I think that just about tops off uh, an incredible regatta win uh, for that rower. So we will be bringing you back to that conversation as well. All right, we are just coming up now on time for news. Uh, We'll be back in a little bit uh, here on News Talk on your VOCM. Stay tuned. We'll be back after the break. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Thanks, Sarah, and welcome back to the program here on VOCM. Richard Duggan in with you this afternoon. And before we get into our next piece, I just want to mention this. I just saw uh, the town of Grand Falls, Windsor, talking about this. This is really cool. Um, the town is congratulating the Leslie Oak School of Dance for their awards and performances this past week in New York City. So the team of 44 dancers uh, participated in the Dance the World Broadway event uh, where they got to perform in Times Square and wow. also at the World Dance Competition. 44 dancers. That's a lot of dancers. And you know what they say? If you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Absolutely. Just listen to some of these accolades that they got. This is just a taste. They were awarded first overall in the advanced team teen group uh, production, first overall in the advanced petite group production, first overall senior group production, first overall junior group production, the judges award, and just a whole bunch of other accolades. So, I mean, like, what a showing, right? Yeah. That's 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 impressive. And uh, shout out to the chaperones that took 44 young girls to (laughs) to New York City in the summer, because you know what? That had to be a little stressful, too. So shout out to them. No doubt about it. And and if you've ever actually looked at like any sort of a dance competition or anything like that, that is very physically difficult. So props to them for just being able to do that. I know I, in my prime, wouldn't even be able to go close to it. Nope, not even a little bit. I got as much, (laughs) I got no rhythm at all. None. No, no, we are in the same boat there. But again, uh, so congratulations again to the Leslie Oak School of Dance. Uh, Just phenomenal. Um, All right, we're going to move on to our next interview here now on the program. Uh, so Bob, Buck- Bob Buckingham Law has launched a class action lawsuit against Newfoundland and Labrador Health Services and NL Fertility Services for a privacy breach one month ago. The breach in question happened on July 4th. Uh, the clinic sent an email to people who had availed of a provincial subsidy to travel out of province for fertility services. On the email, or sorry, those on the email were not blind copied, which means that the names of everyone on the list were visible. In total, 116 patients were affected. I spoke with Buckingham a little while ago to find out about the class action. Well, it's, it's run the gamut, uh, you know. Um, some people in the course of this were, I think a couple of people were uh, open about the difficulties they were having uh, with the lack of services here in the province, but a number of other people, quite a few people, uh, you know, were dealing with this in a, in a private and confidential manner. I mean, this is a, uh, you know, the question of having a child and, and going through the fertility clinic is a very, is a very private matter. It takes a lot of effort and to do this. Uh, the process to go through is quite stressful and on a whole bunch of levels, both physical and psychological, uh, uh, relationship-wise. And uh, the release of their names to other people has had a devastating effect on a number of uh, folks. Uh, at least some people got the information in which they were supposed to go to a, uh, a, to get the next round of uh, services. They canceled. Other people have been stressed out. And 
uh, have you know put you know, the, the program on hold for a bit while they're dealing with it. Uh, the breach of privacy has uh, had a tremendous impact on people in a very negative way who are already dealing with very stressful circumstances in their life. And some of the people you know have been dealing with this for years. You know the, these fertility clinic uh, program and the journey, as people call it, is not always successful. And so people have to go back two, three, four, and five times before, you know, before uh, success is achieved, and sometimes it's not achieved. And every time they go through that, it's a it's a very difficult uh, process. And so uh, this breach of their privacy has had, although it seems innocuous in terms of a little matter to a num- to a small group of people, it has had an amazing impact on on people and uh, on setting back their. Uh, the fertility journey. So what are the next steps now? What happens next? Well, we're going to be, you know, putting together and drafting the, uh, the class action and then, uh, you know, serving it on uh, the fertility services clinic and the Newfoundland health services. Um, you know, and so hopefully you know, they recognize that there was a problem here, you know, the, the, uh, the fertility clinic and the health services, so hopefully they'll come and say, look, let's resolve this without having to put uh, all of these people through a long, drawn-out uh, class action. Uh, you know, they've sent out a perfunctory apology. Uh, that certainly wasn't significant enough. They haven't uh, done anything in a real way. They, they don't, haven't not addressed an understanding of the impact that this has had on the individuals and the sort of the psychological and the traumatic impact it's had on individuals. And so uh, hopefully they will sit down and talk with us about the, the best way of resolving that and to work with the individuals, uh, you know, the, the women and their partners, you know, to uh, make the next steps in the, in the fertility journey easier uh, to un- try to undo the harm that they've, that's been done so far and also then to provide, you know, proper, proper compensation assistance for them on a go-forward basis. All of the individuals that I have been contacting us do want to continue with uh, their services and, and to have children, and they hope to get back uh, on the road to getting that done, you know, soon. But uh, you know, the there has to be an understanding by the fertility clinic and Newfoundland and, and Labrador Health Services of the incredible stressors people are under in this process and the impact that this has had on the people. And, and so hopefully we'll have some discussions along those lines soon. So we'll be drafting the, the statement of claim, and we'll be filing it in the next couple of weeks. And there you have it. That is Bob Buckingham talking about uh, a class action lawsuit that they're launching against Newfoundland and Labrador Health Services and NL Fertility Services uh, for a privacy breach one month ago. And again, uh, about 116 patients were affected in that breach. Um, and if you'd like to learn more about uh, the class action, uh, you head on over to BobBuckinghamLaw.ca and uh, there's a form online there uh, which people who are affected uh, by the privacy breach can and uh, sign up for the class action. All right, moving along now, uh, the Commissioner for Legislative Standards has found that there is no reasonable grounds to conduct an inquiry into Premier Andrew Fury's fishing trip to a luxury lodge 
owned by John Risley in July of 2021. Details of the fishing trip first came to light last fall, and BC or PC uh, Barry Petten had been really pushing for Fury to table the receipts for the trip, believing that there could be a potential conflict of interest there. Well, that didn't happen, and Petten went to, to the Commissioner for Legislative Standards to have a look into it, and uh, that report was released just a couple of days ago. So for reaction to the report, I spoke earlier with Barry Patton. Ms. chafed on the report, and uh, at the time I said I'd accept the report, and I do accept the report. You know, she'd done her investigation, I guess, of, uh, and come up that basically there was no wrongdoing or she couldn't find any wrongdoing. But, uh, you know, I guess, Richard, it comes back to the point of uh, what originally started out my issue with this was it's not as much as about finding someone guilty. It was about asking pertinent questions in House of Assembly to the Premier of the province, who was Premier of the province during 65 days a year. I remind people and I remind him. And these questions we asked were valid questions. There was a lot of public concern, outcry about it, and there was a lot of questions. I mean, billionaire business people involved with a, you know, an oxygen deal, and you're staying at their lodge. It draw a lot of uh, a lot of people raised a lot of eyebrows and it was just my eyebrows it was a lot of eyebrows it was broke by a media agency at first uh, this story was broke so you know I asked the questions I couldn't get the answer so I had no choice but to go to Miss Chafe who done her investigation and she found that uh, you know he had ethical walls and he provided her receipts I might remind the people too public we've never seen the receipts Miss Chafe did uh, the premier felt that he didn't know uh, the House of Assembly people of the province, uh, you know, to, to show, to clear, you know, to clear the air on this issue. It could have been over seven or eight months ago. I, I, beyond me, I would have dragged down for almost 10 months, I guess, now. And I would let it go for 10 months, dragged down. And essentially, Richard, this will be one of his legacy points. And it baffles my mind, the Premier, who, you know, image is important, of course, to all of us, and obviously with the Premier, how he'd let this go on for so long. Uh, and not, instead of clearing the year back when the question was asked, because they were valid questions, and any pre- premier would be asked that no matter who they are. If I was in the same shoes, I would expect him to ask me the same questions if I done the same thing. Now, you said that you uh, accept the report that was done by Ms. Chafe. Um, is this the end of this issue now, or do you continue to press on, on similar questions? Well, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I have no, I don't plan on backing away from any issue if it's if it's value. I don't believe in beating something to death. I mean, I think Ms. Chief done the report. I didn't agree with some of the commentary probably on the end of it there about why we, you know, we shouldn't come to coach commission legislative standards to shake back straight. In the nutshell, she said, but I mean, I wouldn't have went to her if he would have provided the same information he provided her. So it was kind of a bit of a contradictory comment to make because she got the information we couldn't get in the House of Assembly. And I mean, I speak for my opposition colleagues and my our own caucus when I was, you know, I was carrying, you know, I was carrying a torch on this for, you know, us as an opposition. And so, you know, but I think the one thing I think that I think we should all really give some serious consideration to is having a proper ethics commissioner in place that can do thorough, proper investigation. Not saying Ms. Chafe can't or didn't, uh, but I think that the proper, you know, I, I think a proper, someone committed to doing that job could do a lot, you know, could, could do a lot of justice to, uh, to issues uh, in the future of this nature. Do you think that there's a lesson to be learned here, not just for the premier, but for all politicians, for how all this played out? Absolutely, Richard. And I think I said that all along. You know, I, I mean, I may walk in. I mean, tomorrow. I mean, you could find yourself in, in, a, in a position. I, I'm very, I'm very cognizant of the fact I'm a public figure. I'm elected by the people as my district, and I represent my district. In, you know, I mean, you see, a provincial. You know, we are provincial figures, public figures, and I think we need to be very cognizant of decisions we make. And 
I mean, I'll say it again. I just think that was a really poor judgment call for the Premier of the province. And I think any of us were out. We're, I'm MHA chairman six five days a year. The Premier's an MHA and the Premier's chairman six five days a year. You've got to really put an extra lens on it because we're looked at in a different light. And especially the Premier, and I just think the lessons learned should be that we need to really be careful in the optics matter. And I mean, in their code of conduct, it states that it doesn't actually have to be a crime or the mis- misdoing, but optics do matter. And in this case, optics, you know, op- optics matter. But I think the public, uh, court of public opinion is, uh, is viewed the same way too. So it's an, it's an unfortunate situation. It didn't have to be this way. This could have been, you know, clued up within a few days at the Premier been forthright with the questions asked in the House. But here we go. So that's, I think, a couple of lessons learned there. I think people need just to you know, be careful about decisions they make, and if they make something that's a bit, you know, uh, if they're questioning something, I think they, they owe it to the people to uh, provide clarity sooner rather than later. And there you have it. That's PC MHA Barry Patton responding to the Commissioner for Legislative Standards report uh, into the Premier's luxury fishing trip to a lodge owned by John Risley in July of 2021. All right, time for our final break of the day here on News Talk. When we come back, we're going to take you back to the regatta yesterday. We'll be back here on News Talk. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Uh, before we get into a couple of pieces from the Royal St. John's Regatta yesterday, I want to remind people of today's VOCM News question of the day. Uh, still loads of time to go online and vote. Um, today's question, we asked, do you think government is doing enough to address the current spike in crime and drugs in the province? And overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly right now, uh, 85% of people saying no. Uh, they do not believe government is doing enough. Uh, 15% uh, voting for yes. Uh, So again, there's still loads of time to vote on today's VOCM News question of the day. Just head on over to VOCM.com and have your say. All right, so lots was on the go yesterday at the Royal St. John's Regatta. I was down there for a little while. Uh, the place was packed. Uh, but after the championship races, uh, something very special happened. It was a first for the Royal St. John's Regatta. A couple got engaged right in the middle of the winner's circle during the medal presentations following the men's championship race. Capital Home Hardware finished runner-up to find strokes, plaster, and paint- painting. Uh, Brad White of Home Hardware, who has been rowing for a long time, popped the question to to his girlfriend, Dana Reed. <laughs> well, congratulations. This is the first, I think, for the Royal St. John's Regatta. Give me your names. Uh, Brad. Brad White. Dana Reed. Uh, you got to tell me, like, how did this all unfold? Uh, Brad, first off, like, you're a rower. You're in the uh, regatta with uh, Capital Home Hardware and, uh, you know, a couple of tough races there. Yeah, for sure. No, we've been uh, training since September last year and uh, on the pond May 1st, and we've been going at it twice a day every day, you know, pulling our guts out. And uh, I've been planning this uh, this engagement here for a very long time. <laughs> Six months ago, I got the ring, and I've been holding it in since then, and it's been it's been tough. <laughs> Dana, are you connected with the regatta? Ah, no, not. I came along when he brought me into it two years ago. I think he started rowing with Capital Home Hardware, and a year before that, he was a spare. So I wasn't really involved until he he was there. And then I just come, started coming in and watching them. And then this year I started booking their spins. So I was put on as team manager. <laughs> Promoted. <laughs> did you have any idea this was coming? You didn't look like you did. I was shocked. I had no idea. No. <laughs> I was, it's, I'm still stunned. I 
I don't know what to do. <laughs> and Brad, why the regatta and why this evening? Any particular reason? So I've been at every regatta since I was a baby. I've been rowing since I was 13 when I was allowed. I'm 29 now and I'm still rowing. So the regatta is a big thing in my family. And when she came into my life, she learned a lot about the regatta. And it's been something that we connect with every year. And it brings us together, something we enjoy doing. So it just seemed like a perfect time. That's a pretty daunting thing to do, though, to say, okay, let's get married. Uh, what if, like, kind of the answer had been no? Well, if the answer was no, it's live, so I could have rewatched myself get rejected over and over again, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> for me in the Kitty Vitty Lake. <laughs> and Dana, did you think twice? No, I knew, like, it's, I knew when the, whenever the question was to come, I would say yes. This is the most unique thing I have seen in the regatta. I've been here to, gee, since 1981. Like, uh, you guys will have some kind of a story to tell your kids, you know, your, your family. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, it's, uh, I'm happy he was here as opposed to just, you know, by ourselves. I'm, I'm glad it was in front of, I, I was nervous she wasn't going to like it in front of a crowd, but I guess she has to deal with it now. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like center ice at a hockey game, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, talk about pressure, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is the uh, rowing future, like, say, for you guys? Uh, are, are you back at it, you know, next year, or, or do you do other things, or do you know? This year, uh, throughout the season, I was saying, you know, this is this is probably the last year. I want to take a summer and enjoy it to myself. But, you know, coming in second, it's hard to step away from it. So I might be back next year. <laughs> yeah, that, that was uh, some really good races here this year. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Thank you very much, guys. Congratulations. Thank, Thank you so you. much. And there you have it. That was VOCM's Brian Medore, who was down Lakeside yesterday for a very special moment. Brad White and Dana Reed getting engaged uh, after the championship races, uh, the men's championship races there. Uh, really special moment uh, there that Brian got to uh, uh, take in and, and certainly a very special moment for Brad and Dana. I'm going to continue now with one more piece from the regatta. The VOCM's Brian Medore was incredibly busy down at the lake yesterday. I think he punched about 18 hours down there, uh, but he loves it. Um, another first at the Royal St. John's Regatta yesterday, so a lot of firsts. Uh, the Chinese Association of Newfoundland and Labrador had a crew in the race. They never had one in there before. Um, after years of going down to the pond to watch the races and taking the festivities, uh, a group of women decided to put together a team. Coxon Rich Bailey says it all started off pretty slow, but they came together and rode for about eight minutes, with their original goal being to break nine minutes. Here's Brian's piece on that. I mean, you know, we're all proud Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, and taking part in regatta as a uh, spectator has been, like, a huge part of our lives. So it's sort of the first time that was an opportunity to actually participate as a rower, so we all got really excited. And uh, as Richard said, you know, we were a trail mix of absolute strangers and beginners, and, and our first spin was June 15th, and we did our very best to knock him into the water, but him being very experienced, he managed to stay in the boat. But, you know, I mean, like, we made some excellent friends here, and this is a beautiful, elegant, and challenging sport, and it's no trouble telling why this is the longest-running continuous sport in North America, which is so proud to take part. Well, when I tried it in the media race, I mean, it, I knew it was tough. I found it ten times tougher than it looks. How did you guys find it? Well, we started, yeah. When we first started in late June or early July, we couldn't even, we don't even know how to hold them at all. And yeah, Richard used to be mad at us because of that, yeah. And now look at where we are, we are getting somewhere. And we, I have to see that we challenge ourselves. And 
thank you, Richard, to um, have the patience to coach us. And we are so proud to be part of the team. And when uh, you did come to the regatta before this year, uh, would you come for the races or, like, say, for the, you know, the other attractions or, or both? Oh, definitely have, have. I mean, everybody who's in this area loves coming down the regatta just for, you know, the vendors and the concessions and, you know, watching it's a personal dream of mine to go to the regatta one day, and this crew made it a reality this year, so I'm, like, super, super happy. <laughs> when you started, Rich, did you ever think they would hit the eight-minute mark at the actual regatta itself? <laughs> Honestly? Truthfully? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I knew at the contrast, because the only area had a row on contrast. But I knew if we had two weeks ago, I knew they'd be row on eight. Definitely. And what did you have to do to get them to come that far? Mike Power's been down here forever. Yeah, he's more like he, yeah and, and he's like flabbergasted that they came that far. I guess I'm a toxin who believes in teaching how to roll first before you roll hard. Teach technique first, then you get fast. And I spent whole two weeks on technique because you weren't going to roll fast because you weren't conditioned to roll fast. But you roll technically well, and that's why the roll eight minutes. And there you have it. There are a lot of uh, firsts down at the Royal St. John's Regatta yesterday. Uh, there's another one. Uh, for the first time ever, the Chinese Association of Newfoundland and Labrador had a crew in the race. Uh, that was VOCM's Brian Medor bringing us that story, as well as the engagement of a young couple down at the lake yesterday. So a lot of firsts, a special day, not just for the people um, who you know won medals at the races, but also on a personal level as well. So uh, thank you all very much for tuning into the program today. Uh, really appreciate it, as always. Um, ben Murphy will be in the studio tomorrow for News Talk. Uh, I will be off, uh, hopefully. I'm gonna off, too. Yeah, Ben's got a busy day. He's doing – is he doing the morning show? Because I didn't ask him. I don't think he's doing the morning show well, tomorrow because – Because he's, he's going to be doing the afternoon drive, and then he's doing uh, News Talk by himself. So the boy's going to be busy tomorrow afternoon. But you know what? If anyone can handle it, Ben Murphy certainly can. He he's can. Uh, he is really a whiz, and no doubt about it. So busy afternoon on tap uh, for tomorrow for Ben. Uh, I'm hopefully going to try to get some hiking in uh, tomorrow where, afternoon. Yeah. Where, I, are you, where are you going? I, I, I'm thinking maybe the Sugarloaf Path. I'm usually that, – that's a like the standard I'm, for me, right? It's, it's an, That's a nice – Path. Another one that's really nice is from uh, Cape Spear to Maddox Cove. Mm hmm. Yeah. Because you got the ice cream shop at the end. <laughs> so there's there's motivation. Absolutely. You know what? There's been so many times it's so bad, I guess. But, uh, you know, I'll go and I'll do like a two, three hour hike or whatever. And mm -hmm. then immediately, as soon as I get back to the car, it's down to a fast food place somewhere. Right. So, yep. Yeah, but yeah, you got uh, is it Tinkers? Now that's technically Patty's, uh, Petty Harbor, but yeah, it's a it's 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 not a rough hike, but it's a nice hike along the coast from uh, Cape Spear uh, all the way out to uh, Maddox Cove, Pat Petty Harbor. Thank oh, absolutely, yeah, beautiful spot, absolutely beautiful spot. Um, all right, that does it for us here on News Talk today. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, I'm Richard Duggan, uh, Linda Swain. I believe we'll be back next week. Ben Murphy in tomorrow. Uh, thanks to Fonz uh, for producing the show and. We'll talk to you soon.